Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. When we think about religious freedom, we often tend to think about the rights of individuals. Maybe we think about rights of communities too, but generally we're focusing on the idea of religious freedom as a right. In fact, on our last podcast, we talked about human dignity and rights of conscience. Certainly, religious freedom has to do with rights. But when we think about public life, it's important that we also keep in mind the centrality of the common good. And what we want to talk about today is how the promotion of religious freedom contributes to the common good. Joining us today is our friend Joseph Capizzi, who contributed an essay for us on religious freedom and the common good, which can be found at www.usccb.org slash firstfreedomblog. Dr. Capizzi uh, has been a guest on this podcast before. He's a professor of moral theology and ethics and the executive director of the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. He teaches in the areas of social and political theology, um, and he has special interests in war, citizenship, political authority, and Augustinian theology. Dr. Capizzi, thanks again for joining us. Um, thank you for having me, Aaron and Mary. It's really uh, fun to be back with you guys. And I just have to also publicly thank you for the role that you played in this whole essay project. We, we've been releasing this series of essays starting in the fall on our website. Goal is to collect all of these essays into, into like a book. And when we first started talking about this book idea and this essay collection idea, you were very helpful. You were one of the first people I went to to ask for advice. Um, so you've really contributed a lot of your time and talent to, um, to the work of our committee. So I just want to express our appreciation for all you've done for us. My pleasure. My pleasure to help the bishops anytime. So common good language, it's important for Catholic thought. Frankly, though, it often it polls well, and I and it so an idea that's very popular. You can't help but wonder: Does everybody mean the same thing when they say say that they like the idea of the common good? Um, so, can you start us off? What do we mean when we're talking about the common good? What do we mean when we use this kind of terminology? It's a great question and a great place to start. So, th there's a kind of technical definition of the common good that has become a commonplace uh, in Catholic social teaching since the middle of the 20th century, since really about 1958, you know, through 60 or so. Uh, and that technical definition uh, speaks about the the totality of conditions that conduce to the flourishing of human beings um, in a political community, and also the social groups that human beings make within those political uh, communities. That technical definition, um, you know, we, we can sort of talk about why the church has moved to that, but I don't think it's alien to the no a notion that is available to people who are Catholic uh, and non-Catholic, Christian and non-Christian, um, which is essentially some idea that any community of which human beings are part is ordered towards some shared good that they're all seeking together and that that shared good ought to be good for every member of that community. It's very easy to, to think about this, you know, within the context of a family 
or in the context of sports teams, you know, things like that, you can immediately see how individual players or individual members of families or so on, their good is attached to the good of the thriving of the family or the sports team or whatever. And that's the same idea of the common good in a political community, that it's something for which, to put it bluntly, we're all willing to sacrifice. We're, we're willing to make the necessary sacrifices that will enable us as a community to achieve this good that is in, in fact good for everybody. That's why it's so, that's why it polls well. Because a lot of people, again, even people who are without faith understand that there are certain things that it's good for them to do in order for them to flourish and their neighbors to flourish and their neighbors' children to flourish and so on. Well, a follow-up on that. And um, yeah, I, I wonder, is there any tension at all Maybe there is at the technical level, maybe it doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter. You just say so. Um, between the idea of like the goods that we a good that we can all share in versus conditions. For example, to use the sports team, just thinking off the top of my head, you know, I'm I'm a Texas AM football fan. That's where I went for undergrad. So the good, and on one hand, the the good would be to win the national championship, right? So that would be like something substantial. Whereas the conditions would be like all of the stuff surrounding the football program that gives it the opportunity to be successful. It, it's the fancy stadium, right. the it's the nice facilities, it's you know the, the excellent coaching staff. And those to me seem like two distinct things. You've got one hand, you've got the facilities, the coaching staff, the nutrition center or whatever. And then you've got the actual winning the game, the victory, which we all then sort of celebrate. And that's the good we all kind of share in. Those seem like two different things, but you could describe both of them as, as the common as common goods in a way. Or is that not, does that seem like, and does it matter though? Does it make any difference to, to draw out that distinction? It, it does. It's important to make these kinds of distinctions and you're right to, to press the question. Um, and there's, there's going to be different thinking about this. We don't want to get too far afield from religious liberty, right? But so let's just explore that for one second. To some extent, the good of being a national champion, um, especially in college football, is you could almost identify it as kind of external good of the community of Texas A&M football, in part because there are aspects of that football team's pursuit of it that are outside its control, right? So we all know, for instance, polling plays a role in where teams are going to be able to achieve the end of being the national champion. It's probably better to think that the goal of Texas A&M football or Notre Dame football or Georgia football, right, is in fact excellence, right? It's, it's to be the, you know, the best football team it can be. That is, in fact, within its capability to attain and a measure of that, you know, an imperfect measure of that is going to be attaining the national championship. And why is it imperfect? Because there are other elements that, in, that are involved in being the national champion in that kind of sport that are independent of their own control to attain it, right? Again, you know, you've got people voting on who belongs where in the polls and which teams will make the, I don't even follow college football very much anymore, but the BCS kind of thing or whatever, or the bowl championship series, or whatever it's called. Right. There are things that are outside of its capacity to do that. But the conditions that are necessary are are there for, and they're the same, more or less, for every 
every football team, right? So stable athletic department, um, you know, the, the, the recruiting of good athletes who are also good, good, you know, good citizens of the university and so on, right? Like there are all these other things that you can point to that are going to be consistent throughout and identifiable then as common, not only to within the, you know, the, the, the Texas A&M football team, but common to all of those kinds of communities that are pursuing this, right? Decent, at least athletic facilities and so on, you know, right? So that's, it's a good distinction to pay attention to, but I think it actually helps us understand what the common good in fact is and what it is not. Dr. Capizzi, can you, I'm really, I think defining our terms is supremely important. So I'm, I'm trying to really understand this, this term, you know, common good. And I, it's hard, you know, living in Washington, DC and, you know, think I, I, I tend to immediately think of like, our country, the common good of the United States of America, right? But I think what you're getting at is the common good that there are billions of different kinds of common goods because there are, you know, billions of different kinds of communities, right? You have micro macro levels, right? Is it fair to say that what we're talking about is, you know, the, the common good of my little, you know, my home here with my husband and my dog, my community, my church community, the city in which I live, my, so we're really talking about, you know, I mean, you, you use the, the word political earlier, but you're, you're really talking about in a very general sense, political in terms of living in this country that has a, a political life, but really in a, a, you can't count the number of different common goods that exist. Is that fair to say? Well, uh, yes, there's a, there's, Put it differently, there's a pluralism of, co- of communities of which human beings find themselves parts, right? And, and if you just think about yourself, Mary, right, you are a member of multiple communities. Um, and each of those communities you're a member of has a good that is unique to it, right? So you have a family, right? And, and not only do you have a family, you might have, like, in, in essence, multiple ways of thinking about your family. Right. You probably, you know, you have what is often referred to as kind of a nuclear family, perhaps you, a husband, children. Right. Um, but then you might talk about your extended family. Right. And, and those goods are somewhat distinguishable. Right. The good of you and let's say your, your nuclear nuclear family and you and your extended family. And then, of course, you're you know, you're, you work for the USCCB. Right. And that's a community that has a good and you work within D.C. D.C. has a good. Right. And there are these multiple or plural communities individuals find themselves a part of. There are plural communities within communities. And the, the, the bold Catholic claim is that in as much as these are legitimate communities that um, are pursuing legitimate goods, those goods are actually potentially in harmony with each other. They do not necessarily conflict. And if you find yourself at a point where it looks like there's a conflict, it's quite probable that you've made a, a, an error in practical reason, right? In some, it, it invites you to explore, how have I gotten to this point where I see, for instance, something very real to most of us, right? The good of my sort of immediate family as in conflict with the good of my extended family. I mean, how much of us, how many of us find ourselves in positions like that, right? Where, you know, all of a sudden it's like, well, geez, my husband doesn't get along with my mother-in-law, you know, with his mother-in-law, my mother. And right. And you're thinking, well, my husband, I mean, he's the person to whom I've made this, you know, sort of commitment. And, 
right? There's a conflict here. I have to side with him. It's like, well, there's, right? We, we know this. This is human beings, right? There's, there's either a kind of error of judgment or there's passions that are, you know, kind of mal-ordered. Um, it's an indication to us that something's gone, gone wrong. And that's exactly how we'll speak about these things, right? Because we realize they should be in harmony with each other. And that's true, too, of your life as a person in a family and, you know, again, extended family, but also your life as a citizen of different political communities. And that's how I'm using the term political here, really in terms of things like, you know, being a DC citizen, a citizen of the Commonwealth of Virginia, a citizen of the United States. I want to kind of distinguish those as political communities at this point, but, but they're all communities nonetheless, and they do, from our perspective, uh, have common or goods in common to them. That's kind of also a nice way of thinking about just our sense that something has gone wrong in the world, like, you know, even non-Christians or people who don't believe in something like a fall or something like that, but just a sense right. that something has gone wrong by the fact that our common, our goods don't harm, generally don't harmonize. It's an indication that, as you said, that like there are lots of different reasons they could be in individual cases, but the general sense that we have this kind of conflict is one is an indication of just the fact of something that has gone wrong in the world. Um, you mentioned right. though, and, and Mary, I'm glad you asked the question because it, it is it oftentimes, and maybe this is something that just those of us who work as professionally in the Catholic world tend to use common good as a political term and just don't, don't say that up front, that that's what that we're talking about the common good in terms of the political common good, not the common good of the family or, or, or that sort of thing. But, but so talking about the political common good, um, Dr. Capizzi, you mentioned at the beginning of your essay, um, is in the very first paragraph, um, you just had this line about the state, that the state is responsible um, for the spiritual well-being of its citizens. And that really jumped out to me because I don't think most Americans think that the, the, the government is responsible for the spiritual well-being. Now, that's and that's not I mean, that's like in Dignitatis Humanae. I still think that that state responsible for the spiritual well-being of its citizens. I think that's probably going to be kind of a contentious claim to a lot of people. What do, what do you mean by that? How do you respond to people who are a little bit skeptical about of that idea? I think the first point uh, of meaning that I'm trying to get at and that Dignitatis Humanae is getting at um, is precisely that this, the church's understanding of the freedom of religion and even the freedom of religion that is found in the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America does not enshrine religious indifference. Um, that, in fact, it is not embracing a position of indifference to the good of human beings understood as religious beings, right? So um, you, you began by saying, look, you, you don't think most people would think that. And actually, I'm not sure that I agree with that. To some extent, many of our peers, even peers who do not appear religion, religious, uh, many citizens of the United States of America seem to embrace the idea that we are not merely material beings that we are beings who's, who have emotional and spiritual goods um, or well-being 
uh, associated with our lives, sort of built into who we are, and that and that authority ought to um, be cognizant of it, and also it ought to care for it, right? So, public schools have uh, you know counselors, right, who come in uh, after. I mean, they're there already, right? But they're often mobilized after something catastrophic happens, right? There are there are sorts of manifold ways that we we pay attention to this as a society. If you think even about the you know the contested issue of transgenderism, you know that, that we're dealing with in the United States right now, um, a lot of this is bound up with the spiritual well-being of young people, and obviously there's a disagreement about what exactly is happening and how to respond to, let's call it, their non-well-being, right? You know, you know these young people who find themselves profoundly unhappy. unhappy. Uh, but, but that people, again, who are contesting that question, are, are, they are focused, in fact, on this problem of the well-being of these young people that is not merely a physical issue. Uh, and so, so I do think a lot of people are, are sensitive to this, to this claim of the churches that the political community has as part of its responsibility, not merely the concern for the material conditions that conduce to human flourishing, but also the spiritual conditions that conduce to human flourishing. Now, one area where, I mean, immediate, or, or one way we're immediately going to find ourselves um, disagreeing with each other is precisely, okay, in how robust, you know, how robust is that political concern for it? And I think you could argue uh, as a kind of like minimally robust conception of it, that the First Amendment, right, which enshrines the, you know, the uh, priority of the human conscience, right, as a particular kind of being, right, who's pursuing a good that is not merely material, but a good that sort of uh, comports with his or her conscience is in fact one way the church, one way the state cares for the spiritual good of human beings by allowing them as individuals and as groups to pursue this good, which we believe is a natural good of human beings, right? The religious good in concert with who they are as a human being and also in their communities free from government intervention, which will be bad for them as individuals and also um, as religious communities. I wonder if skepticism about the government's or the state's role comes up when there's these, when there's the conflicts, because you're saying it's about when, about how robust it's going to be. Right. And so if, if a group feels itself put upon in some way, because because it seems like there's been overreach that's when that's when it comes into that's when it may come into question or appear to come into question does that make sense it's sort of a response to to conflict to say well just get the government out of or the the, the state out of this whenever it's yeah. whenever it seems like to to one particular group that things are going awry in some way conflict always produces right um heated rhetoric, you know, the harshest responses, you know, reactions and reactions. So there's no question that conflict is going to um, raise tension uh, around questions like this, right? And, and I think we could even say beyond that, right, that um, there are some in our, in our population who have 
accepted that the proper understanding of the state's role here is in fact one of indifference. It doesn't matter, right? And, um, and that's contrary, not merely to Catholic teaching, but it's contrary, I think, to a lot, again, a lot of the experiences of other people, right? Or people as they live their lives. In fact, it does seem to matter that, um, that I understand myself as not merely made happy by material pursuits and so on. But, but a lot of people have embraced this idea that indifference, neutrality is the right posture of the state um, and uh, a kind of you know, disregard for the religious or spiritual ends of human beings ought to be enshrined in the law. It ought to be expressed in the law. And anytime the state does something that appears to depart from that, that, that itself is a problem. Um, but that's, you know, I'm not a constitutional lawyer and I want, you know, I try to avoid saying things that are, uh, you know, beyond my ken, but that's certainly not the view of the church. It's not the view of Dignitatis Humanae, to go back to it. You, you yourself even said that. You guys would point this out all the time, that the, the, the council was clear. Um, and in Gaudium et Spes, it says something along these lines, like the independence of temporal affairs in the, right, the, the worldly independence of temporal affairs cannot mean that the temporal does not depend upon God. Right, it does depend upon God, much as any human being's life depends upon God, and we can't accept this kind of strict division between human beings as individuals and, and as social beings and God's activity in their life. Well, to to bring the religious freedom question even more into the foreground, um, sure. you know, for our committee or for our, our office um one of our concerns in the past has been this concern that sometimes the common good and religious freedom are seen as potentially being in conflict um we we will sometimes hear this idea that you know that the government can respect religious freedom as long as religious practice does not harm the common good that kind of posture that attitude of of seeing in the first place of seeing religious of seeing freedom and the common good as in potential conflict seems like a problem because religious freedom is a necessary dimension of the common good um, so can you talk about that why is religious freedom when you talk especially when you talk about common good as conditions for flourishing Religious freedom then then seems key. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Why is religious freedom um, necessary for the common good? I mean, in a way, the first response of uh, our, of our faith and of even our philosophy, right? Uh, the philosophy we sort of ascribe to um, is what, because this is in accordance with what we are as human beings, right? It's basically this is our nature, right? Our nature is to be religious beings, and uh, and and we're not merely religious beings, we're religious beings of a rational sort who have been called to respond to God in a way that is consistent with our nature. And that response, um, everybody you know, within the Christian tradition agrees is free, right? I mean, right, it's within our dignity to respond to God freely. And when we, when we are not responding to God freely, something has gone wrong, right? So the first answer, in essence, the best answer is precisely this is our nature, right? And religious freedom, the free response of a human being to God's call to him or her 
is in accordance with our dignity, is what the state ought, what political authority ought to preserve, protect, in essence, sanctify, right? It really ought to recognize it as a kind of, um, I, mean, I was going to say holy, right? But uh, you know, I mean, this, it's, it's an essential aspect of what it does. But to go back to your point, there's no question that the lived experience of fallen human beings, right, of, of imperfect human beings, often sees conflicts. We are living in the midst of it right now during the pandemic, right, where government has certain goods, it's attempt, right, that the state has certain goods it's attempting to pursue, right, in particular, it's attempting to pursue the minimizing of the harms caused by a virus, right, that is in some respects lethal, and when it's not lethal, it causes great harm to people, and it causes harms physically to people. It obviously causes harms that are not merely physical, right, in the way that we're responding to it. So, right, there's a lot that's going on here, and government is trying to act. And governments, when they act in situations of crisis like this, they'll often do things um, that that are stretching their its authority in ways that you know doesn't do you know during times that are not of crisis, and so the the vaccine mandates right or the attempted mandates um, are governmental attempts to pursue the common good as it understands them right, and it's being resisted precisely by some people from religious perspectives and saying this is a contrary to you know to my understanding of what my faith permits me to do. And there you go, you've got real conflict at that point and claims by the government on behalf of what it understands the good to be, claims by individuals on, on behalf of what they understand their goods to be and perhaps also the common good to be. And this is, I mean, this is exactly how life among fallen human beings gets lived, right? Conflict, an apparent conflict of the exercise of authority against claims of religious conscience. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, uh, Dr. Capizzi, sure, because that's sure. when I read your essay, that was, I, I thought, oh my goodness, this is exactly the, the, the mandates, vaccine mandates, this is exactly the, what's happening right now is, right. Um, you, you mentioned in your essay um, something that caught my attention, which was um, that uh, you're talking about the, the language, the connection between individual rights uh, and the common good. And you, you mentioned that the church over time increasingly has resorted to the language of rights when it talks yes. about in the context of the common good. So I just wondered if you could touch upon that a little bit and talk about like why that is, uh, you know, why the church has done that and what is the connection between the two, between individual rights and the common good. Yeah, so um, the why question, why is it the case that um, the church increasingly uses the language of rights? Uh, you know, to some extent, it's a hard question and, and there might be different dis disagreements about this, but there's no, in my mind, there's no denying the sort of historical context in which the language of rights uh, becomes more prominent, right? So, I mean, if you just do like a really sort of thumbnail, uh, sketch of all of this, right? Uh, the language of rights initially gets associated with certain kinds of um, revolutionary movements, right? Um, that are in some respects quite hostile to the church, right? Uh, of course, the French Revolution being a sort of singular uh, example of this. And the church is, is more or less suspicious of this, of the, 
languages of rights. Um, but in the, in the 20th century, against the rise of totalitarianism, you see uh, that by you know, 1963 or so, um, the church has begun to embrace the language of rights, right? Pacham and Terrace is you know, sort of like the, the document um, where the language of rights proliferates. Um, and that's uh, Pope John XXIII's encyclical on this. And, and that's relatively novel in the tradition that all of a sudden you see the church using the language of the modern era, um, this language of rights uh, and endorsing uh, the language by its use in part to express a kind of defense of the human being against the activity of governments that may act contrary to human beings, much as again occurred in, uh, in, in Central Europe um, during the, you know, the early mid 20th century. It's now commonplace, for, you know, in the catechism, in almost every subsequent document since Pachamenteris at least, you will see that the language of the common good is in fact being expressed in part in the defense of rights. So as you point out, Mary, there's really this connection of if you are going to defend common, the common good, one way or, or describe the defense of the common good, one way you do this is precisely by talking about defending the rights of individuals and communities and occasionally even national communities, right? So certain kinds of peoples um, will be defended by church documents. This is, I think, no question new. Right, uh, or as I said before, kind of novelty um, within our tradition. Uh, and it's trying to avoid, on the one hand, rather clearly, it's trying to avoid the individualism and, you know, one might even argue the sort of anti communal position of the earlier embrace of rights, right? It's really concerned about that. But it's also rather clearly trying to embrace the emphasis on the human person, right? That, that was provoked by these anti-person, anti um, even certain kinds of communities, political movements in the middle of the 20th centuries. That, that's not the only story to tell about this, of course, right? But I think it's an important part of that. Uh, and then the, that, that's why you're seeing the connection of the common good to the language of rights now, in, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it makes me think of, um, I'm trying to remember who it was recently. I read I, one of the Holy Fathers, I believe, that wrote that, you know, for example, abortion, you know, the, the abrogation of the right to life is, and they wrote that abortion poisons society. And that's exactly it. It's when the right to life is trampled, it, it poisons society. It, it damages the common good of, of our of our nation, of our society. So it's it's that it's that ultimate connection right there. That's right. I mean, it's a great example to use too, right? Because there are, there are different ways of seeing how that poison works, right? One is just to see, of course, the evil of the denial of the humanity of the developing human being, right, in utero, right? I mean, that's just, I mean, you just focus on that person who's struggling for life in utero. And that, I mean, that that's sort of manifest the other is the way that 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 the adoption of a philosophy that could deny that human being, the humanity of that human being, actually itself seeps out into the wider culture, right? And it's 
you can't control that at that point, right? Now you've got human beings denying the humanity of other human beings on the basis of something that seems utterly accidental, where they are in space, right? You know, inside a human being as opposed to outside a human being. Um, and that seeps into every corner of our lives, right? And we start to think about other questions. Well, why is it the case that space matters so much to whether a human, a person is a human being, right? Or one that we're going to care for in a particular way. And it's going to think, it's going to affect, for instance, the way we think about immigrants, right? Or people who are, um, you know, refugees. Well, they're in the wrong spaces, right? And by virtue of being in the wrong spaces, they lose the protections that we think human beings deserve by virtue of being human beings and so on, right? I mean, this is, it's very quick, uh, embryos, right? Um, again, wrong spaces, wrong stages of development, you know, et cetera, right? All of the, they can't be contained, these philosophies. So that I think it's a great connection to make there. Some of what we've been talking about, um, talking about vac the vaccine mandates, um, disputes about rights, uh, they kind of they imply these questions about the role of government. And my my own sense, oftentimes when common good language is used, sometimes it seems to me that it's just it's just a way to say like it, it implies that the government should have more power to direct our lives in certain ways. Um, you kind of touch a little bit on your in your essay on how common good also can, is connected or kind of entails uh, limitations on government. I wonder if you could just, could you just say a little bit about that? How does yeah, you know, promotion yeah. of the common good does not necessarily just mean the government gets to do more stuff? Yes. So, right. Go back to, this is why Mary was right to say like, you know, definitions matter, right? Go back to our opening conversation, the opening of this conversation where we talked about what exactly is the common good? And and I, I, I'm not sure if I did this, but I think you can speak about the common good without talking about the state, right? Without talking about government. You just say, right, it is the good of a community, okay? And it is what everybody in their, that community understands themselves to be ordering their lives towards, right? Is the good of this community. The government, and this is where the limiting principle comes in, the government serves that good it is not that good itself, right? So governmental action, laws, et cetera, order us towards the pursuit of this, right? Um, and they do so more or less well or more or less badly when they are in fact ordered towards the common good, right? If they're not ordered towards the common good, then we have a measure by which to judge government action, right? This is, again, this is exactly what we're experiencing with the pandemic, right? Is people who are saying the mandate is wrong uh, because it is not actually serving the common good because it's overriding legitimate religious liberty or it's an overextension of government authority because um, according to some people, right? The gravity of the threat is not great enough and so on, right? There, there's, there's disagreement about this, in other words. I'm not endorsing those views, by the way. I'm just, I'm just offering them as examples. So the common good actually has a limiting, measuring effect on the way we think about the operation of government. But as you said, Aaron, for a lot of us, when we hear the language of the, the common good, it's precisely, okay, now what is the government going to do, right? And that's, that's a failure of imagination. It's partly our own, our own habituation 
into the nation state way of seeing the world, right? We, we think this is all about the government. What is the government going to do? In fact, what Dignitatis Humanae is doing, what Gaudium et Spes is doing, what our tradition is doing is saying, it's not primarily about the government. You know, the government has a role here. It has a responsibility, as I said in the opening sentence. It doesn't have the only, and it doesn't have the full responsibility to care for the spiritual health of human beings and so on, right? It has, it has a role in this, a legitimate, but a very precise role. And it can overstep its authority by, for instance, impeding the pursuit of the religious good of human beings, right? By saying, you can't do this now. Um, or this kind of religious community can't exist here right now, you know, and so on. Um, so, but, but look, well, the real human life, right? The life in a political community is precisely constant contest over what are the right limits? What is the right action right now? Again, um, what you're seeing in the public, even among Catholics is an argument over mandates and so on. Is this right or not? You can see bishops, you know, and the Pope have weighed in on this um, and, and, you know, in some extent, it's received well. In some extent, you know, people resist it. But that's partly what we do um, as human beings, right? We, For many of us, the common good is exactly the, you know, the, the state's pursuit of what I understand to be good for me, right? That's the, the right, the danger writ smallest, right? But in a sense, the most, the one we're most familiar with is the government needs to do what I understand to be good, right? And when it doesn't, it's failing. And this is where the role of humility is so important in all of this, right? We have to be humble um, in our own apprehension, our own understanding of our apprehension of what is good for me as an individual, what is good for the communities I find myself a part of and so on. Um, so I can be a good citizen, right? In part, so I can be a good citizen, not merely uh, so I can be a good citizen, but because it's good for me anyway to be humble. Well, I want to wrap up with kind of something practical and you're already hinting, I think, at, at sure. the answer to the question. Um, you know, are there, you're talking about like failure of imagination uh, or the way that our, our discourse is sometimes not very healthy. So, and so maybe that's your answer, but are there other ways in our other aspects of our, of our political culture where, where we're not really living up to, to kind of our call to promote the common good, but, and then what can Catholics do? What's, what is a way that ordinary citizens Though, especially people who don't live in DC and aren't working, they're not, or they're not working in advocacy and that sort of thing. Just, just regular people. What, what can we do to promote the common good? Great series of questions. I'm going to pick up on your language of ordinary citizens, right, and just make a point that I've made before. Um, and I can't remember if I made it with you or not, Aaron. But when, when Pope Leo XIII wrote, um, starts the Catholic University of America. In the, ninth, in the late 19th century, he writes about how the goal of this university will be to help uh, produce the republic's best citizens, right? So the goal of the Catholic University of America is to produce the, the republic's best citizens. In other words, we Catholics, if we are formed well, can be the best citizens of this republic, which, you know, Pope Leo XIII was somewhat ambivalent about, right? But we can still be the best. That should be our goal. On the one hand, I, I think it's deeply meaningful, right? That's what we should be ordering ourselves towards. On the other hand, it's somewhat vague, right? It, it you know, kind of leaves spaces for how we de define what it means to be, you know, the Republic's best citizens. But one thing, a couple of things I think it sort of encourages is, like I said, number one, humility, right? A kind of um, humbleness about 
what we understand the good at any moment to be. Civility, the living well with our neighbors, especially those with whom we disagree. Commitment to the truth, right? A, you know, a kind of commitment to dispelling falsehoods whenever we can, to being as truthful with each other as we can, to saying things that are hard to say, especially with those that we agree with. Forget about the ones we disagree with, the ones we agree with. To disagree with people when we, in fact, right, even though it might threaten an alliance or a friendship or so on, um, when we believe what we you know, are disagreeing about to be true and so on, these should be goals of ours. We're, we're living in the midst of a pandemic, right, on top of, you know, tumultuous political change and so on. One thing I've been struck by is how people are, people are really tired. I mean, they're kind of, and I don't mean tired, like um, they're worn down and can't get out of bed. I mean, they're, they don't have as much patience, right? Um, and, and their responses to things are, you know, they're impatient, right? They're, they're a little bit more heated. I think if, you know, Catholics can be patient themselves, right? Can, can understand that, you know, the fraughtness of the situation we find ourselves in, we can actually help do a lot of good um, for our communities right now. Two comments on that. Um, I, I appreciate the, the point about telling the truth to our, to our friends, because I do, I, I notice this a lot, this kind of unwillingness often to kind of d disagree with people that we perceive to be in our own group. And I've, I have thought this myself, that this seems to be kind of a problem that because it, because it starts to mean then we fall into habits of just not being truthful. And I don't mean like calling people out, but just, like I said, just like cultivating habits of speaking truthfully, I, we kind of fall out of that if we're not willing to, to be truthful, even with our own, with our own friends, Th that does strike me as a problem. I'm, I, I appreciate you pointing that out as, as something, because uh, we often get so focused on polarization. How do we, how do we speak right. truthfully and charitably with, with people that we're not on board with, but it's like, but that doesn't mean we, but we need to speak truthfully and charitably with our, with our own, you know, we get it's right. easy to overlook. That's that. the hardest task in a way, right? That's the really hard one. Yeah. Um, and I also like to think that um, my own gardening and beautifying the neighborhood is contributing to the common good. I like to think myself, oh, we'll have to ask your like neighbors. I'm virtuous What's just up? because of my hobbies. So <laughs> let's ask your neighbors their opinions of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any weeds in there? Come on. <laughs> I kind of just let a lot go. I will say that I'm, I'm a naturalist, I suppose. So I don't, maybe some, some people like it and some people, maybe they don't like it so much, but I like to, I like to think that I'm doing something. So. Well, look, you're, you're making a good point about beauty though, right? Um, beauty always has a role um, mm -hmm. because, beauty, because beauty is true, right? Um, it, people are moved by beauty. Um, and if your lawn is beautiful, Aaron, congratulations. And I'm sure you're, <laughs> and I'm sure your neighbors appreciate it. Mary, I, any last words? Just, I love, thank you for making the point about humility, because I think that's important too. You know, I mean, pride, right? The, that's right. What started it all, right? The fall and everything and just humility, because, you know, we're not God. We try to play God, you know, that's, that's when it all goes south. So yeah, just what a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Capizzi. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. We've been talking with Joseph Capizzi about the common good and why it matters for religious freedom. You can check out his essay at usccb.org slash firstfreedomblog. I'm Aaron Weldon.
And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Thank you.